Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was booted. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now, he's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, look at us just days away from Halloween. <laughs> I'm so ridiculous. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am Liv, here with yet another bonus spooky episode, revisiting last year's spooky season. You know, uh, it's just because I can, because I wanted to, because uh, spooky season is the best. I've been doing this for six years and sometimes they're really good and I want you all to hear them again. So I will force it upon you. 
You know, I also, I didn't pick these bonus episodes all from last year on purpose. I kind of wish that they were more spread out, but these are some of my best. And thus, you know, here we are again. Today, we are once again returning to the realm of ancient witchcraft, because it's not only a favorite topic of mine, but it's also a favorite topic of the ancient world. And thus, some of the best content that we have when it comes to this realm of ancient horror. Witches are some of the most ancient creatures and concepts across the globe, and gods, we love them for it. So today we are revisiting Hecate and her line of witches, everything witchy from ancient Greece. Hecate, she who is everything and mysterious as all hell. And Asteria conceived and bore Hecate, whom Zeus, the son of Kronos, honored above all. He gave her splendid gifts to have a share of the earth and the unfruitful sea. She received honor also in starry heaven and is honored exceedingly by the deathless gods. For to this day, whenever any one of men on earth offers rich sacrifices and prays for favor according to custom, he calls upon Hecate. Great honor comes full easily to him whose prayers the goddess receives favorably, and she bestows wealth upon him, for the power surely is with her. For as many as were born on earth and ocean amongst all these, she has her due portion. The son of Kronos did her no wrong, nor took anything away of all that was her portion among the former titan gods, but she holds, as the division was at the first from the beginning, privilege both in earth and in heaven and in sea. Also, because she is an only child, the goddess receives not less honor, but much more still, for Zeus honors her. Whom she will, she greatly aids and advances. She sits by worshipful kings in judgment, and in the assembly whom she will is distinguished among the people. And when men arm themselves for battle that destroys men, then the goddess is at hand to give victory and grant glory readily to whom she will. Good is she also when men contend at the games, for there too the goddess is with them and profits them. And he who by might and strength gets the victory wins the rich prize easily with joy and brings glory to his parents. And she is good to stand by horsemen, whom she will, and to those whose business is in the gray, discomfortable sea, and who pray to Hecate and the loud, crashing earth shaker, Easily the glorious goddess gives great catch, and easily she takes it away as soon as seen, if so she will. She is good in the byre with Hermes to increase the stock. The droves of kine and wide herds of goats and flocks of fleecy sheep, if she will, she increases them from a few or makes many to be less. So then... Albeit her mother's only child, she is honored amongst all the deathless gods, and the son of Kronos made her a nurse of the young who, after that day, saw with their eyes the light of all-seeing dawn. So from the beginning she is a nurse of the young, and these are her honors. This is episode 185, She Gives, She Takes Away, The Goddess Hecate and Her World of Witchcraft. Oh, Hecate, you wonderfully witchy goddess, you. So fun fact, today's episode was actually going to be about infernal goddesses, chthonic goddesses, those badass women who live amongst the dead. Hecate among them. You all all wanted more Hecate, so I thought, great, Hecate, awesome, why don't I do a whole special episode on women of the underworld? Chthonic cuties. 
That's a horrible thing to say, but it felt funny in the moment. In any case, here I have this amazing idea about infernal goddesses, and so I start diving into sources, and I think, you know whose book I somehow don't yet have? Fan favorite guest of the podcast. She told me all things Persephone and then talked all things Alcestis. She is the underworld in a human, Ellie Mack and Roberts. She's also written a book on the underworld. So, huzzah, I thought, sources. So I bought it and I start looking through the table of contents. And firstly, now I want to devote days to reading all of this, days I do not currently have, and thus I pick and I choose usually. And I saw, huh. Hecate is only included in an afterword, referred to as the missing goddess. So I go to that afterword. And well, Ellie, in all her brilliance, blows all my plans and schemes for this episode into smithereens because, well, and I should be calling her Dr. Mackin-Roberts here because respect. Anyway, Dr. Mackin-Roberts here argues, in great detail, why Hecate is not an infernal goddess, not a chthonic goddess. <laughs> so, okay fascinating for one and also whoops frankly though it worked out because alongside my hecatean research i discovered so many more more stories of weird and wonderful witches that i'd already made plans for future episodes and so now instead today is witches and next week is infernal goddesses hecate excluded <laughs> don't worry you are not missing out on more persephone or an introduction to malinui another often suggested name no that's just uh, next week, and hopefully alongside a very, very appropriate conversation, too. But this week, Goddess Hecate, work thy will. Hecate was born to the Titans Perses and Asteria. Or she's the daughter of Perseus. Or she's the daughter of Asteria and Zeus. Or she's the daughter of Aristaios. Or she's the daughter of Nyx. Even better, and to confuse the situation even further, is the idea that she is actually uh, double with Iphigenia after she's been rescued by Artemis. That then there are the two are, are one and the same. You remember that moment, don't you? Iphigenia is being sacrificed by her own father, Agamemnon, in favor of good winds to send the Greeks to Troy. But at the very last minute, Artemis replaces Iphigenia with a deer, so that it's the deer that her father kills, while Iphigenia is whisked off to a divine realm where she becomes one with Hecate? Where does that idea come from, you might ask? Well, Pausanias tells us this, but he tells us that it was Hesiod's idea that this moment was recounted in the Ahoyai, the Catalogue of Women. Pausanias, for his part, is a very late author during the Roman period. I'll be talking more and more about him in the podcast. For now, though, while he's the one who tells us this, there's further evidence to suggest that maybe this idea is a thing. Two other authors who speak of references to it, even if those references themselves are lost. And frankly, no, this possible connection to Iphigenia doesn't add too much to Hecate's story, but it is interesting. Is it related to her status as goddess of crossroads? Iphigenia is saved by a goddess at the very last second before her death. Is that in itself a crossroad? This connection also suggests a closer tie between Hecate and Artemis, though any concrete evidence seems lost. But oh, we can imagine. <laughs> what would a melding of Hecate and Artemis give us? A badass archer warrior witch? I mean, yes, please. But yeah, a lot of people have a lot of different things to say about who exactly are Hecate's parents, let alone who she was. We're not going to dwell too long on that because there will never be a finite answer to any of these questions, such as the brilliantly infuriating nature of Greek myth. Today, what matters is the goddess herself. And if you think that talking about the goddess herself is going to be less confusing and more straightforward, then have I got news for you. But you asked for this, all of you. Just remember that. You wanted more Hecate, and Hecate is non-linear and non... I don't even know what she is. She's incredible. Hecate has got to be one of the most mysterious goddesses. It fits her vibe generally, but it's also <laughs> frustrating because Greek myth. You see, Hecate is sometimes said to be the mother of the sea monster Scylla of Odysseus fame. That incredible woman-dog hybrid who snatches men from off their ships and devours them whole. 
According to the Argonautica, the Hellenistic epic poem that retells the story of Jason and the Argonauts, Hecate is indeed this mother of Scylla. Circe tells Medea that she tells it very specifically. But what of the portion of the Theogony that I read to you earlier? What is that saying about Hecate? Fuck everything. It's basically saying that she is one of a kind and gets this really special treatment in every possible way. But let's go into that a bit more in detail. Because according to Hesiod, Zeus honored Hecate above all others. Take that in. Zeus honored her above all. He gave her everything. Literally, Zeus gave to Hecate a share of the heavens, the earth, and the sea. She would have dominion over all three regions, but notably, not the underworld. But the sea and land... Oh yeah, she's explicitly said to hold sway over those whose livelihood comes from the sea and the flocks that the people tend on earth. Everything that you think has another god or goddess already handling it, Hecate also has a hand in there. And and not only would she receive honor in all of these realms, but humanity on earth would have to call on her with every right, custom, sacrifice. And, quote, Great honor comes full easily to him whose prayers the goddess receives favorably, and she bestows wealth upon him, for the power surely is with her. Ugh! She can give and she can take away. Hecate holds immense power over basically everything. And yet, where is she in the stories? She reminds me of Hestia in this way. Her importance is not only immense, but also obvious. It's it's spelled out very clearly. Like she is powerful. Almost as though she, along with Hestia, goddess of the hearth, are so powerful that they're just beyond the stories themselves, above them all. They don't need the drama. They have better things to be concerning themselves with than bickering amongst the other deities or, or fucking with life on Earth. Hesiod goes on to explain that even after the war with the Titans, when Zeus gained complete control over the Earth and the Olympians took their place on Olympus as this ruling pantheon of gods, where Hecate is not one of them, even then, Zeus didn't take anything away from her, this daughter of Titans. She remained exactly as powerful as she was before, which is not something many other Titans can say for themselves. Quote, Whom she will, she greatly aids and advances. She sits by worshipful kings in judgment, and in the assembly whom she will is distinguished among the people. And when men arm themselves for the battle that destroys men, then the goddess is at hand to give victory and grant glory readily to whom she will. Truly, this woman is incredible, and she wields sway over everything. So, Hecate is given power over all three mortal realms, the earth, the sky, and the sea. But what does that mean from a practical standpoint? We hear so much about the other gods, and Hecate barely figures in anywhere. So how was it that she held so much power, and how did it manifest? Well, once again, I will mention her similarity to Hestia. She played a major role in day-to-day life of the ancient Greeks, rather than playing a major role in the Olympian drama. See, she's an intermediary. The Olympians are busy with their bullshit, they're chasing after unwilling women, their jealousy, and their petty squabbles. They're busy with all of that. It can be difficult for humans down on Earth to get a word in, even when they really need some help. So instead, they'll ask Hecate. Hecate's name means worker from afar, which is kind of an ode to the this. She handles the day-to-day. She can get the message through the Olympian noise and help the person down on Earth get what they need. But you might be asking, where are the witches live? 
well, for all her power and influence, Hecate's connection with witchcraft is, like so many things in Greek myth, frustratingly unspecific. Where does it come from in terms of sources? It's not like Hesiod said anything about it. In fact, the earliest reference I could find to Hecate being explicitly linked with witchcraft, or pharmaca, as it was often called, this kind of making potions to do your will, is in Euripides' play, Medea, where Medea explicitly worships the goddess in her witchiest of ways. Medea says, quote, By the goddess I worship most of all, my chosen helper Hecate, who dwells in the inner chamber of my house. None of them shall pain my heart and smile at it. Bitter will I make their marriage, bitter Creon's marriage alliance, and bitter my banishment from the land. So there she's talking specifically about this moment when she's been told she has to leave and how she is going to get her revenge for that. That said, it isn't actually linking Hecate to the magic specifically. In this case, it's just Medea's worship. In fact, it seems that Hecate's explicit association with magic and witches comes later. Maybe it was there by the time of Euripides' writing of Medea, but certainly it was there by the time of Apollonius' writing of the Argonautica. The Argonautica is, again, the most detailed story we have about Jason and the Argonauts and Medea, at least in terms of what survives. It's a Hellenistic poem that I have read to you on this podcast, so it comes about maybe a hundred years after Euripides was writing in the classical period. In the Argonautica, the links between Medea and Hecate and their resulting witchcraft is really specific. And it gets more specific from there, with lots of other later authors recounting Hecate as this goddess of witchcraft and magic. So it seems to me that maybe this is a later invention of Hecate. And earlier, she's just this wildly powerful goddess who doesn't actually have like a specific role, which is in itself so unique. And she didn't even take part in any stories, just like existed alongside the gods as one to rival almost all of them. And even when she is officially the goddess of witchcraft, she's still rarely included in stories as an actual character. Rather, she's a goddess being worshipped and called upon by all the others who practice witchcraft and pharmaca without actually taking part herself. All of this continues the tradition of... This is so frustrating, and we all just want more from Hecate. We want her to be a character in a story. We want it long and detailed and full of scary magic. Instead, we have this woman who appears to be all-encompassing, all-powerful, influential beyond belief, deeply necessary for any and all who practice witchcraft and apparently for, like, the rest of life, but one who remains, well, in the shadows. There is, of course, one story where Hecate does feature as an actual character who does actual things to advance the plot, and that is the Homeric hymn to Demeter, the earliest and most detailed source that we have that recounts the abduction of Persephone by Hades and Demeter's search for her daughter. It's also the earliest source we have to link Hecate to the underworld in any way, even if it is far less specific than many might have you believe. Hecate helps Demeter find Persephone, coming to the goddess with torches in her hands. Together, they speak with the sun god Helios, the only one who actually witnessed Hades' abduction of Persephone, because Helios sees all. Once Hecate has helped Demeter find her daughter, she is said to become an attendant of Persephone. This leads a lot of people to believe that Hecate then has this really finite and defined place in the underworld alongside Persephone in her new life. But that isn't clear, actually. And the point at which Hecate becomes an attendant of Persephone in the text is actually explicitly after Persephone has returned to the upper world and has been reunited with her mother. That said, she does still appear to accompany Persephone to and from the underworld each year, but any role inside that realm is still lacking. 
And so with that, we do return full circle to this idea of Hecate and Dr. Macken Roberts' assertion that she's not a chthonic goddess at all, which is mind-blowingly fascinating and also really, again, threw a wrench in my episode planning this week. But hey, now we have two episodes of spooky women, chthonic and otherwise. I could go deeper into this background on this point about Hecate's lack of a role in the underworld, well, there's a conversation episode that I'm hoping is coming soon that will save me the trouble. Hang tight. But for all I've talked about Hecate up to now, there's still been very little actual witchcraft. And yet, that's what she's known for. She's the goddess of crossroads and the goddess of witchcraft. But again, who says? There is no theogony-like source that describes this, no explicit words stating Hecate is this goddess of witches. Instead, there are lots of little hints around it. Again, Medea calls upon her for her own magic, like I mentioned in Euripides. Apollonius uses her name in reference to Medea's magic, like almost every time Medea does anything remotely magical, remotely witchy. And then later, writers like Ovid and Diodorus Siculus lay it on for us real thick. Diodorus also really messes with Hecate's origins in terms of what we know and like what I told you at the beginning of this episode. He's writing quite late, like in the first century CE. So while he's a Greek historian, he's writing during the Roman Empire and many, many hundreds of years after people like Euripides, let alone hundreds more to get to the Theogony. Still, his take on Hecate is fascinating. So I'm sharing it. I mentioned part of this in an episode of Medea and Witches 2 years ago, but it is necessary here. So according to Diodorus, Aetes and Perses were brothers. Perses was still Hecate's father, but in this departure, she actually goes on to marry her uncle Aetes. First, though, she surpasses her father in, quote, boldness and lawlessness. And then just to really add to her personality, quote, she was also fond of hunting, and when she had no luck, she would turn her arrows upon human beings instead of the beasts. Like, I know this is murderous, but it also just so- sounds cool, you know? Like a woman not only out hunting, but also like being like, fuck it. If I can't catch the animals, I can certainly catch the man. <laughs> I know it's still bad. Then, though, Diodorus really gets to the witchcraft. Quote, Being likewise ingenious in the mixing of deadly poisons, she discovered the drug called aconite and tried out the strength of each poison by mixing it with food and giving it to strangers. And since she possessed great experience in such matters, she first of all poisoned her father and so succeeded to the throne and then founding a temple of Artemis and commanding that strangers who landed there should be sacrificed to the goddess She became known far and wide for her cruelty. Now, there's a lot going on here. I think a lot of which is to do with uh, demonizing somebody from the East, because Hecate, in this case, is from Colchis, so very not Greek. It sounds very anti-Eastern and also kind of amazing. I love this Hecate, just trying out her poisons on anyone she came near and just deciding that any visitor actually gets sacrificed uh, to Artemis. It's it's pretty good. Again, I, I really love this Hecate, though she is considerably more evil than her earlier counterpart that had nothing to do with witchcraft in the first place. Again, Diodorus is also, he's rationalizing the myth here. He's like humanizing Hecate, making her more of a mortal character, a mortal witch doing evil, murderous things rather than an all-powerful goddess. This isn't the Hecate that we normally think of. And that's in large part because, one, Diodorus is a historian. He's trying to explain what he sees as actual history, hence the Eastern stuff, not gods. And, And two... Again, he's writing at least seven or eight hundred years or so, maybe more, after Hesiod. So things have changed. Still, it's a great quote. And Hecate here is still powerful as fuck, if not more so. After all this too, she goes on to marry Aetes in this version, like I mentioned, and then become mother to Circe and Medea. So this is really changing so many things, but in interesting ways. Of course, it's linking all of these witches to one very specific family and making them much more related than they are in the Greek sources. 
In the traditional Greek sources, she's not either witch's mother, though they're, again, they are related by their titanic connections, but further off. And Medea is not Circe's sister, traditionally. But instead, she's her niece. Still, again, all of this is worth knowing. It's its own wildly interesting and bizarre version of Hecate. Let's be honest, everything we can find and learn about witches in the ancient world is worth knowing, particularly as we transition into stories of very real women purporting to be or accused as witches in ancient Greece. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner gene eugene fodor gene was booted much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and the last star on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 
one of the books I have about magic and witchcraft in the ancient world, the source book by Daniel Ogden, who is not at all coincidentally because it's spooky season, but going to be this week's conversation episode. He's written every book you can imagine about all things spooky in the ancient world. And he calls these women daughters of Dianera. These are stories of women who may or may not have considered themselves witches, but who were accused as being them in a way after they poisoned their husbands. You remember Dianera, don't you? She's the main character of the play I shared with you earlier this year, The Trachinii, The Women of Trachis by Sophocles. Dianera is the wife of Heracles, who accidentally kills him with a poisoned shirt. Because of this, she becomes a kind of patron saint of women who poisoned their husbands. And because, well, her her name literally means destroyer of spouse. (laughs) And our first daughter of Dianera's story comes from her trial. The prosecutor, a man named Antiphon, wrote a speech, and that speech survives for us today. Firstly, how fucking cool is that? Secondly, let's look at her case with the understanding that our knowledge of it is coming from the prosecution. Oh, and yeah, one of the men who died was also Antiphon's father, so he's not exactly unbiased. One of my sources suggests that this speech is fictional, and the other doesn't. Frankly, we don't care, because it's interesting all the same. Antiphon's father has been killed, and he's speaking for the prosecution. He explains that his father's friend, a man named Philonius, occupied the upper story of his father's house when he was in town. Philonius, though, had an enslaved woman who is, surprise, surprise, not given a name here. Antiphon's father's wife, she's not Antiphon's mother and she is not named either, so we're going to call her the stepmother. Anyway, the stepmother actually befriended Philonius's enslaved woman when they were staying at her home. I think we like the stepmother. She befriended this enslaved woman to such a degree that when she found out that Philonius was intending to sell her into a brothel, the stepmother actually warned the woman what was coming for her. That and the stepmother confided in the enslaved woman that she was also being abused by her husband. And just a pause here to tell you that, wow, am I adjusting the language here, because this is the prosecution after all, and also ancient Greece. So, boy, they were unfriendly to both of these women, but we'll get back to that. For now, the stepmother has just told her friend that they're both being mistreated by the men in their lives, and she proposes they do something about it. Antiphon here explains that they intended to use love potions to make both men fall in love with them, and in order to better their lives. But yeah, I think we might be okay assuming that the intention was never to make the men fall in love with them. Love wasn't about to make abusive men not abusive. So yeah, I don't think this was ever a a love potion. I think Antiphon's a sucker and these women are smart. Still, he goes on. The women decided they they would give the potions to the men when they traveled from Athens to the port of Piraeus, where Antiphon's father was intending to set sail to my favorite Cycladic island, because it's magical, Naxos. They were going to sacrifice to Zeus there and pour some libations of wine, and so this was the women's chance. Now, one thing of note, the stepmother does appear to have given the dirty work to the enslaved woman. We might falter a bit, but unfortunately, this was the world they lived in. Enslavement was deeply, completely normal. So if you've got to pour a potion somewhere, you're going to get the enslaved person to do it. And so the woman pours this potion into the men's glasses before they're about to drink, after they've poured their libations, and she gives a bit more of it to Felonius, her own abuser. Antiphon, in all his sucker glory, says very clearly that he believes she thought that more of the potion would mean that Felonius would love her more. And I believe she wanted him just deader, because she was an enslaved woman that he's about to sell into a brothel. She doesn't want love. She wants freedom, or if not that, revenge. But maybe I've just read too many of Elodie Harper's books. It works, regardless of her intentions. Philonius dies the moment he drinks from the glass. 
there was more than enough poison for him. The father, who had a bit less, died 20 days later. Antiphon recounts that the enslaved woman's punishment was torture and death, and the stepmother's is set to be decided at that very trial. He is very sympathetic to the enslaved woman, blaming his stepmother entirely. Ultimately, though, I get the sense that both these women knew what they were doing, either because they just wanted to or they saw no other way. But that we have their story in this way is pretty incredible. As far as I can tell, we don't know what happened at this trial, though, whether the stepmother was found guilty or not. The stepmother and the enslaved woman she befriended aren't the only women we know of who were accused of being witches. We have others to go through, including more stories of women poisoning men, though theirs are shorter. One woman was said to have given a love potion to someone, and when he died from drinking it, she was tried in the court of murderers, the Areopagus that I told you about in Ares' recent episode, and she was found innocent. They determined that she hadn't intended to kill the man, it had been an accident. The Roman author Suetonius tells us that the famous emperor Caligula went mad because his wife gave him a love potion that went wrong. And speaking of Romans, this idea that love potions from women are both common and dangerous to men appears to have been pretty well known. Plutarch has some advice for a couple that are about to be married. He explains that, quote, if one goes fishing with poison, one captures and easily lands the fish, but the poison renders the fish inedible and disgusting. This, he says, is the same as when women give love potions to their husband and who, quote, control them through pleasure. They share their lives with bewildered, mindless, and ruined men. I'd like to ask Plutarch whether it's possible, just a tiny bit possible, that maybe the men were always that way and the women had nothing to do with it. But alas, I cannot. He finishes this point by tossing in a reference to Circe, noting that when she's transformed Odysseus's men into pigs, they were not particularly useful to her. He compares it to her love for Odysseus, who still had his mind and, and how they had a nice time together. Sure, dude, but the pigs also weren't a threat to her when they were pigs, whereas a bunch of men coming at her with weapons was pretty threatening. Anyway, did I think this foray into women and love potions would turn into me developing a new and troubling understanding of ancient men? No. But was it fun? Obviously. But what about women accused of being witches that didn't have anything to do with love potions? Well, let's talk about Theoris from Lemnos, better known as the Lemnian witch. Like the stepmother and the enslaved woman, this story seems to have been an actual court case, though we don't have speeches about it. For all we love Medea and Circe, the women actually being accused of being witches, at least with the, when their supposed witchcraft caused some kind of harm, were not respected or revered. Or in this case of Theoris, she might not have actually caused any harm at all, but she was still put on trial for her magic. The case of Theoris isn't entirely clear, but it seems that she was a woman from Lemnos who lived in Athens in the 4th century BCE, and she was put on trial for dealing in drugs, pharmaca, and incantations, spells. Whatever she dealt, though, got her and her entire family executed. Oddly, it seems that other evidence about Athens during this time suggests that they were typically more lenient against claims of magic, drugs and spells and the like, even though this specific case indicates otherwise. And later sources, it seems, suggest that she was actually formally accused of impiety, something that did carry quite the punishment if you were convicted. One cannot actively work against the gods. If Zeus won't smite you with a thunderbolt for it, then the Athenian courts certainly would. This, it seems, makes a bit more sense in terms of her sentence, where the magic might not carry a severe punishment, 
working with magic, even in terms of practical pharmaca, things that could help sick people or cure things, if this magic was seen to contravene the gods or manipulate their will, it too counts as impiety. In the source I'm using, Magic in the Ancient Greek World, there's even a reference to a Hippocratic piece of writing, that is what we would now consider to be medicine or origins of it, that, quote, the itinerant religious specialist who laid claim to magical expertise also implicitly claimed to manipulate divinity. So yeah, basically somebody working with magic in that way claimed to manipulate divinity. So maybe Theoris was actually just a woman doing good work, using pharmaca to help people, the same pharmaca that will go on to be things like drugs and good things. They'll give us words like pharmacy and pharmaceutical. But don't let this make you think that everyone doing this kind of work would get a punishment like this either. It's very possible there's more to this case than we know, since the sources we have vary in many ways and not all are even from the time period when this would have happened. There might have been politics attached or a grudge, some random detail that made it all the more severe. Anything, really. Still, it's a fascinating example of what witchcraft could have been back then. Between Theoris and these stories of women and their love potions, the abilities and, and stories of so-called witches seems to vary broadly. Were they witches? Were they practicing anything close to magic or even pharmaca? Or were they just women who were fed up with the abuse of men in their lives, willing to face the consequences of poisoning them if they were caught? There are so many fascinating possibilities when we look at the lives of very real women living in this realm, working with drugs and poisons and so much more. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, perhaps more colloquially known as the assistant producer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv, and I love this shit, especially spooky season. I just couldn't, I couldn't resist. I'm bringing you everything for a whole week because happy Halloween. <laughs> Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was booted. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.